0: I'm Scott Paul, and this is the Manufacturing Report.
1: We're not going to change China. What we need to do is change ourselves. And I think there are two really major flags that I would try to fly if I were Biden.
0: As a veteran trade negotiator and presidential advisor who was a leader of the first U.S. trade mission to China in 1982, Clyde Prestowitz has had a unique on-the-ground perspective of China's re-entry into the global trading system and the country's failure to live up to the world's dreams of economic and political liberalization. In his latest book, The World Turned Upside Down, America, China, and the Struggle for Global Leadership, Clyde argues that the U.S. must re-establish itself as the workshop of the world. My conversation with Clyde about what the future holds for the U.S. as the Biden administration prepares to level the playing field for American workers and revitalize American manufacturing. Next, on The Manufacturing Report. And I'm honored to be joined on the manufacturing report by Clyde Prestowitz. Clyde is the author of "The World Turned Upside Down: America, China, and the Struggle for Global Leadership." Clyde, thanks so much for joining us.
1: My pleasure. Thank you. So,
0: Clyde, I have to say I've known you for a significant amount of time, and do yeah. uh, than either
1: <laughs> want to think about.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and 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 one of the things that I've always found, you know, when I was a a young Hill staffer. Uh, I remember picking up Trading Places, which was your take on the, the U.S.-Japan relationship, which I, I thought was was very timely. You've been, I think it's fair to say, ahead of the curve on a lot of these issues, and conventional wisdom usually catches up with you. But to tee us off, before we get into some of the insights in the book, you know, I wanted to ask what you think gave you that frame of reference to have this deeper understanding of international economic competition and what our response should be and what you perceived to be these external challenges, first from Japan and China, that a lot of people missed. In fact, virtually everybody in what what you would say the establishment kind of missed this.
1: What gave you those insights? Scott, I've had a long and varied career. I, as a graduate student, I went to Japan in 1965 which was the year after the Japanese miracle had been declared by The Economist. And I studied at Keio University, and I saw Japan in the 1960s when it was catching up. And then I had a career in business for about 35 years. I, I worked for Scott Paper Company, an American can company. Uh, I lived in, uh, in Europe, in Switzerland, Brussels. Uh, I lived in Japan, went back to Japan, and worked in Japan again. And I I was in Japan in the 1970s as a business person. And I saw Japan in the 70s becoming a major challenger to the US. You know, I was in business. So I saw how it was working uh, and what the Japanese were doing. And I thought I began to understand why they were working so well. And then I went into government. I was in the Reagan administration as counselor, secretary of commerce, and then uh, in the 1990s, uh, under Bill Clinton, I was vice chairman of his commission on trade and investment in Asia. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, I've had a long and very career. And I wanted to say that you're right. I came out with a book in uh, 1988 called Trading Places About Japan. And the key element in trading places was to try to explain to the uh, Western public, particularly the American public, that Japan was playing a different kind of economic game, that we had been assuming that because Japan was, quote, a market economy, and because it was, quote, a democracy, and because it was a member of the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariff and Trade that preceded the WTO, that it was playing the same game we were. And I knew it wasn't because I had been there and I had been playing the game in Japan. And I tried to explain in the 1980s that Japan was playing catch up and it was playing industrial policy and it was targeting particular industries to become the leader and the dominant player in. And it was managing all of its policies, not just its uh macroeconomic policy, but it's microeconomic policies to achieve leadership and dominance in what it considered to be key industries. And it of course was pursuing export-led growth. Now, you know how if someone produces a new musical or a new play, before you take it to Broadway, you go to Philly or to Boston. And if it does well in Philly or Boston, then you go to Broadway. Sure. So in this game of globalization, I look upon Japan and our experience with Japan as Philly. And now China's Broadway. And the problem I see is that we never really learned the lesson of Philadelphia, i.e. Japan. And now we're in it in spades with China uh, and we still haven't really learned how to play this game. But we're trying harder I'm, I'm encouraged by statements that President Biden has made, but we have a long way to go. I wanted to ask you
0: about that because you know, you've know you been following this for some time, and its I think it's fair to say this is not a partisan assessment here, that each president probably felt like he got dealt a terrible deck of cards when it came to China by his predecessor. And the terms that China entered, the WTO, kind of Bush and Hank Paulson's indifferent response to any of the rules following that at least some people expected out of that. And then Obama certainly felt that way about the Bush administration. Trump felt that way about Obama. And then I think Biden is probably like Trump has taken a significant amount of action. A lot of it has been unilateral. And I think we have to reserve judgment in terms of how effective it has been. But you mentioned you were hopeful by some of the comments that Joe Biden made, and I'm wondering if you can expand on that a, a bit sure. because every president so far has kind of missed this. What do you think Joe Biden's going to be able to to call from that experience?
1: So I think that um, if I, I you know look at the presidents, let's say since uh, since Reagan or maybe even since Jimmy Carter, all of them until Trump, all of them until Trump you know, Republican, Democrat, didn't matter, all of them until Trump, operated under the impression that globalization was, one, a positive thing, that globalization was good for the United States. And secondly, they operated under the assumption that free trade and globalization was going to make China not only into a market economy, but also, if not into a democracy, something much more benign than the authoritarian dictatorship that it is today. Uh, And and, I mean, I was in the Reagan administration. I, I was on the first American trade mission to China in 1982. And at that time, the administration, Ronald Reagan's view of China, and the administration's view of China was that it was it was going to get off the communist road and get onto the capitalist road, and we were going to help it get onto the capitalist road. And we promoted American uh, companies investing and dealing with China, and transferring technology to China. George H.W. Bush uh, had been ambassador to China, and he was kind of in love with China. I worked on his staff for a little while, and he was kind of in love. He had a romantic view of China. And when Deng Xiaoping set the tanks into Tenement Square, on June 24, 1989, what did George H.W. Bush do? Did he condemn it? Um, no, he sent he Scowcroft, sent his national security advisor, to Beijing to tell Deng Xiaoping not to worry, that he, George H.W. Bush, would keep the boats from rocking. And he had this view that China could be made into a market economy and, and a democratic uh, kind of government. Bill Clinton famously made the comment when the when China erected the Great Firewall to cut off the Chinese internet from the rest of the World Wide Web. Clinton laughed, he said, ha ha ha, trying to control the internet will be trying to nail jelly to a wall. George W. Bush made the comment that free trade carried the seeds of democracy. and. Obama also operated under the view that more investment, I mean, for example, Jeff Immelt, who was chairman of uh, General Electric when Obama was president, was also chairman of Obama's Commission on Jobs and Competitiveness. Right, right. During that time, Jeff Immelt announced that GE was going to take its entire avionics division and put it into a joint venture with a state-owned Chinese company called Avic to sell avionics to to China. Now, avionics are not labor intensive. They can't be made cheaper in China than in America. What the hell was Jeff Immelt doing? Well, the Chinese had told Jeff if he wanted to sell avionics in China, he better make them in China and get into this joint venture. And that's what he was doing. And I have always wondered, did Obama ever call him up and say something like, Jeff, what the hell? I don't think he did. So it really, all of our presidents, and and it's not just the presidents, the entire American geopolitical establishment, the CEOs, the academics, the Congress people, they all labored under this misconception of what China was all about and and the misconception of what globalization was all about. It wasn't until Trump that we began to shift. But uh, now with Biden, his initial comments, I think, have been encouraging. I think uh, he and his team, some of his team, after all, were there under Obama. So they, you know, in a way, maybe they've learned from their mistakes. I hope they've learned from their mistakes. And they sound like they've learned at least something from their mistakes.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it certainly seems that way from the comments from Jake Sullivan and Secretary Blanken and others, in addition to the president.
1: Now, having having said that, Scott, though, I, I do have a concern. Uh, And this gets into kind of the weeds of specific government. But on the one hand, uh, Jake and uh, Kurt and the president himself have been making what I consider to be the right kinds of statements. On the other hand, there has been an emphasis on we're going to talk to our allies and try to build a united front of we and our allies to confront China. Correct. Right. I'm a little concerned about that. I'm all for talking to allies. Uh, One of Trump's big mistakes was that he talked to allies in the wrong way. And so I think Biden will speak to our allies in a better way. But you have to recognize that our allies are also laboring under misconceptions. And I don't want us to be constrained too much by the limitations of what our allies might be prepared to do. I mean, for example, if you take this recent investment agreement between the EU and China, if you read that agreement, and if you know anything, if you've ever been involved in China uh, and free world negotiations, you instantly recognize that that agreement is worth absolutely zero. Germany will get nothing out of that agreement. But yet Angela Merkel was so anxious to do that agreement that she couldn't even delay a couple of weeks to allow Jake Sullivan to go over and talk to her Mm. people. Mm. I don't want Jake Sullivan to be constrained by Angela Merkel. Uh, Yes, right. I, I think that's absolutely
0: true and critical. So Clyde, how would you counsel a Biden administration to approach this? Because, you know, as you said, the Trump administration did talk to allies, but discounted them in in many senses. And so the go it alone strategy had limited utility. I mean, as we enter 2021 here, China is relatively better positioned than it was a year ago, and everybody else is not. And there's a variety of things that went into that. But how should this be approached understanding that Various interests, including multinational companies, also you know, are embedded in the EU and Merkel's thinking in all of this. It's yeah. kind of a delicate balance.
1: It's a very delicate balance. But I think I would I would say it this way. I think going it alone, Trump going it alone, just going it alone was not necessarily a mistake. Somebody had to do it. I think the mistake was that it wasn't that Trump didn't talk to our allies. He did talk to them. But he talked to them in the nastiest possible way and alienated them. You know, if, if he had gone to our allies and said, hey, allies, look, you know, I know that you guys have your own constraints and, um, you know, I hope you can support me in doing what I'm about to do. And here's why I'm doing it. But, you know, I, I, you have your interests. I have my interests. I need to pursue my interests. If he had just been nice, <laughs> you know, telling our allies what he was going to do, I think he'd have been better off. One point I think is important. I don't think that Trump's policy has been bad or unproductive. I think that one has to, if you look at Trump's policy in terms of, did the Chinese make good on this trade agreement that the Trump administration negotiated with China? Of course, they didn't. But there's something much deeper and more important. Until Trump came along, if you were a global CEO, investing in China held no risk for you. It was a sure thing, you invest in China, the Chinese will give you the land, they'll give you uh, easy credit, you won't have any unions, you won't have any uh, restrictive environmental requirements and the uh, RMB will be kept undervalued. Uh, So why wouldn't you go? What Trump did was to enter in an element of risk. Wow, geez, if Trump is gonna do that stuff, should I still? throw all my money into China. And what we have seen is many global companies, it's not that they're pulling out of China, but their next factory is not going to China. Yeah. And I think that was an important thing that, that Trump accomplished. In the case of Biden, I think that he will speak more nicely to our allies and he might be able to persuade allies to come along with us. On some critical areas, I mean, even Trump succeeded in getting most of our allies to forego uh, Huawei on 5G telecommunications. So I think Biden probably have more success with allies than Trump, but I don't want Biden to be inhibited by uh, necessity of bowing to uh, allied concerns.
0: Yeah, Clyde, I think you're onto something there, and that makes a lot of sense. And one of the things that's obviously I think, insightful about your book is that you talk about this very complex relationship with an enormous country with sizable ambitions. And as you know, there's a lot of blame to go around. There are some steps that we can take, and we've discussed a few of those. But let's get into this counselor role a little bit more. If I'm Tim Cook from Apple, and I say to you, look, my supply chain is... Deeply embedded in China, I get exactly what I need out of that. It's also a large consumer market, um, and we don't have the capacity to do it here in the United States. Your approach or having, I guess, a a bolder tariff approach or other types of economic checks on China could backfire. Again, I'm channeling Tim Cook here. I'm, I'm not personally buying any of this. But how does Joe
1: Biden respond to a Tim Cook? Well, I'm glad you raised uh, Tim Cook because I have a story that will explain a little bit. So let me take you back to 1982 and I'm in my office at the Commerce Department and my assistant comes in and says that Steve Jobs is on the line for me. And I laugh. I say, come on, uh, you're kidding me. (laughs) No, 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 it's Steve Jobs. So I take the line and it's Steve Jobs. Uh, And he's having trouble getting his Apple III into Japan. And so I go well, out. I meet with him and his top people, and we put together a plan. And we managed to get the Apple III into Japan. Now I look today at Tim Cook, and I look at what Tim Cook sells, and I realize that virtually everything, everything that Tim Cook sells, originated somewhere in a government laboratory, a government-funded uh, program. Right. And then I look at where, how Tim Cook runs Apple, and I realize that he has, I don't know, the 40 or $50 billion stashed in tax havens in Singapore, another 40 or 50 billion stashed in tax haven in Ireland and Bermuda and other places. And I I look at him making everything in China, and I say to myself, now, if Tim Cook needs help someplace, He calls up the U.S. Embassy and he says he's an American company and he needs help. But is he an American company? Here in Washington, he's powerful. He has legions of lobbyists and lawyers. Uh, He spends gazillions on political donations. He has instant entree into any office here in Washington. How about in Beijing? How's that work in Beijing? He's on his knees. He kowtows. He has no stroke in China. He does what Xi Jinping tells him to do, to the extent that when the kids were demonstrating in Hong Kong, they had an app from the Apple App Store that was used to track the Hong Kong police so the kids could stay away from the police. She told Tim it might be a good idea if that app was removed from the app store, and it was. When Tim comes to Washington and testifies, he testifies as an American businessman. Well, I'm not sure he represents America. So what I would do in the case of a company like Apple, I realize that they have extensive supply chains and they can't be all changed at once, but it can be changed gradually. And the next assembly line shouldn't go to China. On the one hand, I would offer carrots. I would put together a fund like the Japanese and the Australians have to essentially subsidize reshoring. In Japan, they've already doubled the fund to help Japanese companies move production back from China to Japan, uh, I think we could do the same thing in the U.S. We could we could do that with Tim Cook, or even if it doesn't come to the U.S., it'd be better if it went to Mexico or India or uh, Timbuktu uh, rather than to China. And I think that there's another factor here, uh, Scott. Go back 20 years, labor was an important cost in assembly and production of these products, and Chinese labor was certainly much cheaper than U.S. labor. But today, this is all automated. Labor is not a huge factor in production. And it seems to me that when Apple moved to China, they didn't have all those engineers and technicians available in China. They had to train them. And so if they could do that in China, they can probably do it in other places, like the United States. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So
0: Clyde, I'll note in your book that you make a number of recommendations on a wide swath of policy, because I agree there's not like a one single solution to all of this, but it's making our policies work in concert with each other from, as you indicate, kind of corporate influence, tax policy, market access, monetary policy, investment in our industrial sector, having an industrial policy competitiveness and then obviously changing the dynamic of the international economic relationship we have with China. And I'll, I'll urge our listeners to take heed to all of that. I wanted to ask you about kind of the range of issues that Joe Biden's going to have to deal with when it comes to China, because some of these are human rights matters, like the genocide of Uyghurs or the erosion of democracy in Hong Kong or the reach of Beijing beyond its borders to stifle dissent now and to take unprecedented actions there, technology development, government subsidies, state-owned enterprises, the security risks in the South China Sea. I mean, we could talk about this for 15 minutes, the, the various and sundry issues, but, but as Biden is thinking through this, what issues should kind of come to the forefront when he and his team are thinking about their China approach?
1: So I think that the key thing to focus on in dealing with China is actually the United States. I don't think we can change China. I mean, I, I wouldn't spend a lot of time negotiating with the Chinese. We've done that. It doesn't work. Sure, we're not gonna change China. What we need to do is change ourselves. And I think there are two really major flags that I would try to fly if I were Biden. One of them is that we need to have an America that is united. An America in which businessmen like Tim Cook are actually acting like Americans, an America where business leaders and political leaders and academic leaders are all feeling like they have a stake in in America. The second thing is that we need to become again the workshop of the world. If you go through history and you look at how countries became rich, various countries became rich and powerful, the first was the UK and the UK led the industrial revolution and it became the workshop of the world. It made everything and it exported uh, uh, products, it imported raw materials, and it was the workshop of the world and it became rich and powerful, followed by the US, uh, Germany, uh, other European countries, followed by Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, and now China. the the formula is always the same. You focus on manufacturing because manufacturing gives you economies of scale that creates wealth, and it gives you technological advance much more rapidly than most other areas of business. And so you focus on becoming a manufacturing leader, a technological leader, and you focus on maintaining strong exports And on maintaining the leadership, particularly in the leading cutting edge technology. So, China, for example, has made in China 2025. And as you know, under that policy, China has targeted the semiconductor industry, aviation, biotech, artificial intelligence, robotics, all of the cutting edge 21st century technologies. China is telling the world, no secret, we, China, are going to be kings of these industries. We ought to have Made in America 2030. I think if Biden had that slogan, Made in America 2030, that would be a powerful organizing factor. Makes a lot of sense to me, Clyde. Thank you so
0: much. And I hope that Joe Biden and his advisors are able to absorb your recommendations and that many of them see the light of day. I think we'll be better off. And obviously, an internal focus on manufacturing is something near and dear to our hearts and something, as you know, that we've been collectively uh, encouraging our Congress and administration to do for the last 15 years or so. So I'm, I'm grateful that you have contributed to a deeper understanding of the challenges that we face with China and have uh, suggested a path forward. Thanks, Guy. You're doing God's work. Likewise. <laughs> Clyde. thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you. That will do it for the Manufacturing Report this week. You can find Clyde Prestowitz's latest book, The World Turned Upside Down, America, China, and the Struggle for Global Leadership on Amazon. As always, I wanted to thank AAM staff and Kat Adams in particular for their work to make this episode possible. And I also want to thank you, the listeners, for engaging with us and for giving us some great episode ideas. Please be sure to subscribe to the Manufacturing Report on Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. And also let us know what you think by leaving a review and a rating. You can find us online at americanmanufacturing.org. You can follow us on Facebook or Instagram, and you can connect with us on Twitter at Keep It Made in USA. I'm Scott Paul, and until next time, together we can keep it made in America.